Today's reading comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. It might be easy for you to locate where that is. If you find it difficult, come talk to me after a service. I might run a special Bible study just for you. All right, Genesis 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. But the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated it from the darkness. He called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Word of the Lord. Years ago, friends and I were doing this four-day backpacking trail called the Enchantment. The experience lived up to the name. It was enchanting, but at the same time, it was extremely challenging. The second day was probably the most difficult. By the time that we reached our destination for the day and set up our camp, we were just so exhausted. So we just sat down to eat our lasagna-inspired food rations and watch the stars come up. In the enchantments, there is absolutely zero light pollution. Even campfires, they're not even allowed. So what you end up with is a starry night that will just put you in pure awe and wonder. And that's what happened to us that night. We sat silently in pure awe and wonder, and we just watched and marveled at the stars. Eventually, one of the guys broke the silence with a question. He was, a, he was an atheist. He grew up in a spiritual but not religious environment that is very typical of my generation. But at the same time, he was a, he's a product of a Jesuit school system. He knows a lot about the Bible, although he rejects every single theological claim. He's opinionated and very vocal, and his question went something like this. Do you really believe that there is a God who created the perfect universe? Then the human sinfulness came in and corrupted the entire thing. I don't know who that question was addressed to because there was another friend who was a strong Christian in our group. And he answered yes. That's when my atheist friend asked a follow-up question as if he was waiting for somebody to say yes to the first. He said, how can you look at something so beautiful and call that broken and distorted? He had a point. When people visit the Grand Canyon, Yosemite, Yellowstone, and, or Zion in Utah, they don't see brokenness. They don't see distortion. Likewise, when Christians visit national parks, they're not there to witness the brokenness of our creation. No, they see the beauty of God's creation. And if you're like at all, like my mom, when you're at one of those national parks, you might burst into singing, How Great Thou Art. You know the words? 
O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the works thy hand hath, hath made. So what do we mean when we say things like our world is broken because of our sinfulness or that things are not the way they're supposed to be? That's what my friend was asking that night. But before we try to answer my friend, we need to figure out what we mean by world or cosmos. Because my friend's question was based on his worldview that the world was just material. So the beautiful starry display of that night made it impossible for him to see the world as broken, distorted, and corrupt. But we are different, aren't we? First of all, we're not even atheists. We believe in God, and as the Nicene Creed reminds us, we believe in God, the maker of all things visible and invisible. God created not just material things, but also immaterial things. But we cannot ignore the fact that we are surrounded by scientific naturalism and materialism. And as a result, our reading of the creation story often renders a scientific conclusion. Some even try to look for scientific answers about how this created, or how this material world came to be. I still remember my Sunday school class and having to remember all the things that God created each day. I was quizzed on that. Our assumption might be that the creation story in Genesis is about creation itself. I don't want to be misunderstood here, so let me just say right now that I do believe that God created the material world. When Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, I believe that physical things were part of that creation. I even believe in ex nihilo, the idea that God created everything out of nothing. However, there are two points that I want to make today. One, unlike the worldview of my friend and many like him, the world isn't merely material. Two, unlike how most Christians, many Christians, uh, just assume, the creation story in Genesis isn't about creation at all. Like the rest of Scripture, the story is ultimately about God and what he has done. And it reveals that God created the universe, the universe that is grander than the world that we see and touch today. So if the cosmos isn't merely material, what do we mean by cosmos? Better yet, what does the Bible mean by cosmos? We can find the answer by looking at what was there before and after God's creative activity. So we turn to Genesis 1-2. Before God's creative activity, the earth was formless and empty. We might assume that this must mean that before God created the world, there was nothing. More specifically, no material thing existed. But the Hebrew words for formless and empty here are tobu, and bohu, or tohu and bohu, excuse me. These two words throughout the Bible always denote 
chaos and functionlessness. So the ancient readers would have understood Genesis 1-2 to mean that before God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was chaotic and functionless, not necessarily formless and empty. The following references to the darkness and deep waters are just manifestations of that chaos, that functionlessness, tohu and bohu. In the end, Genesis 1-2 paints the picture of an environment that is just so hostile, the environment where no life can exist. So when God begins his creation activity in 1-3, Genesis 1-3, that is actually his answer to the functionless, chaotic, lifeless state that we see in Genesis 1-2. For example, life cannot survive in darkness, so on the first day of his creation, God created light. He spoke light into existence. He also gave the light its unique function, that is to be a period of light called day. And in the following days, we see God continuing to create things and giving them assignments, their own unique functions. Finally, on the sixth day, when everything else was put in place, God created humanity, the crown jewel of his creation. On that day, God not only created the physical bodies of these humanity, human beings, but also the things that make them uniquely human, things like soul, love, and relationship. God's creation had both the things that we can see and touch and things that we cannot see and touch. And they all had their unique life-supporting functions. In the end, with his creation, God transformed the chaotic, functionless, lifeless, hostile environment of Genesis 1-2 into a orderly, an orderly, functional, life-supporting cosmos where life could finally flourish. And God called this creation very good. And that is what Bible means by cosmos. Then why do we and other Christians call this cosmos broken? Why do we say things like the things in our world are not the ways they're supposed to be? Of course, it's because of the fall, what happened in the Garden of Eden. Human disobedience caused a crack in the fabric of this perfect cosmos of our God. And sin crept in through that crack and turned order to chaos, functions to dysfunctions, and de- life to death. Although we might get beautiful starry nights once in a while, our world isn't starry at all. It's actually just pitch dark. My atheist friend now lives in Chicago with his wife. A few years ago, he called, me, he called me out of the blue just to vent. Apparently, he had a fight with his wife uh, about having a child. She was all for it. She wanted to have a baby, but he was against it. He told me he was against the idea of having a child because the world out there was too, bru- was too brutal for a newborn. Isn't it funny and ironic that he could now recognize the brokenness of this cosmos? I mean, that's the funny thing. Everybody is somehow aware of the fact that things are terribly wrong in our world. 
That's why Paul in Romans 8 says the entire creation is frustrated and it's groaning. The nature that gives us resources is suffering. Our society that's supposed to unite and bring people together has become the cause of divisions and polarization. The people who are supposed to use their power to uplift others are abusing their power to oppress people, to bring them down. It's easy to see that things are not the way they're supposed to be. But look no further, because our own lives also testify about that brokenness. Let's use relationships as an example. Like all things in life, God created relationships and gave them their unique life-supporting functions to give meaning to life, to bring people joy. And sometimes our relationships do those things. But often, our friendships, marriage, and child-parent relationships are chaotic. They are chaotic and dysfunctional. Instead of joy, they bring us hurt. They bring us pain and leave us a this lasting damage like inability to trust another human being. Suffering, evil, brokenness, all these things point to the fact that our world is not the way that God created it, intended it to be. God's creation order is broken. The life-supporting functions are gone, at least distorted. In a way, the cosmos that we live in has reverted to the functionless, chaotic state that we saw in Genesis 1-2. So we shouldn't be surprised to see people like my friend who refuse to see their children grow up in this broken world. People who struggle to find any meaning and hope in this world. And perhaps you are one of them today. So where are the hope and comfort in all these things? And does the Bible offer any? You probably know that the story of the Bible has four main stages. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. The fall is not how our story ends. Restoration is how this story ends. And to find hope and comfort in that restoration, we need to understand then what was created before because that, in order for us to understand what is being restored, we need to understand what was created in the beginning. It's like solving a complex math equation. If you get the first step wrong, your result will always be wrong. If we get create, if we misunderstand the creation, we will always misunderstand the restoration, and we will always fail to find any hope or comfort in that restoration. 
if we are to have the right understanding of the restoration, then we must start from the fact that God's creation included both material things and immaterial things. It's the only way that we can see that the things that cause us pain, suffering, and sorrow in this world, whether it's something that we can touch and see, whether it's something that we cannot touch and see, whatever they may be, those things will not last forever. It's the only way to see that when God is coming back to restore his cosmos, he would deal with everything that is broken. He will deal with all that causes chaos and dysfunctions in our broken cosmos. And when we see that, the restoration suddenly feels like good news because we now have something to look forward to. But there is more good news. The Bible says that the restoration of God is not some distant future event, but an event that is happening right now in our midst John's gospel opens with a famous statement about how Jesus was the Word of God in the beginning. John says that this Word was there when God created everything, when God spoke light and all other things into existence. He was there. He was with God, and He was God. Then John boldly claims that this Word of God came into our broken cosmos. And he does that by carefully creating allusions to the creation story in Genesis 1 with words like, in the beginning, darkness. The point is that our broken world is much like the tohu and bohu state of Genesis 1-2, when things were just chaotic and functionless. And into that world, Jesus came. And after that, John makes another bold claim with another illusion. He calls Jesus the light. It's a clear callback to the first thing that God created in the beginning. As creation began with God speaking light into existence, according to John, the restoration began when Jesus came into this world as the true light. And this, of course, is good news because when we see that the light is already shining, there must be more things, more things that are coming. The light is the guarantee of the restoration that is coming. The restoration of what was created according to God's creation order when things were there to support life and to help it flourish. Just as God separated the light from the darkness in the beginning, Jesus separated his people from the darkness of the world and brought them into his light. We are part of that people. We are in Jesus' light, and we see his light. Therefore, we understand that there are more things to come. Although we might not see it today, we know that the full restoration is coming. Renewal is coming. The healing is coming. All the suffering, hurt, painful things that we are too familiar with today, things like losing people, those things will be things of past when he comes to restore his cosmos. So what do we mean by cosmos? It's God's creation. And as such, it's under the control of our God. It's under God's care. 
Therefore, we can be confident that God will deal with this broken cosmos. He will turn chaos to order once again. He will turn dysfunctions to functions once again. He will turn death to life once again. He has done it before, and he will do it again. And that's the hope of the restoration. But it's more than just hope for those who are in Christ, for us who have seen the light of Jesus Christ. Because with the death on his cross, Jesus has sealed and guaranteed the restoration for us and all who belong to him. That means although the full restoration has not come, we can start living like it is already here. Even though we are still in this broken world, we can live like we are destined for the full restoration. Even in the face of death, we can hope for the new life in Jesus Christ. Even in the suffering, we can look forward to the joy that we will have when God fully restores his cosmos. And that's what we are celebrating today at the table. We will foretaste the heavenly feast that we will have in the presence of the God of the universe. We will remember that God has said that this is how our story will end. We will, re- we will enjoy the full restoration of our God and we will finally have the everlasting life the way that we were created and always meant to have. That's why we have hope today, because we always have something to look forward to. Pray with me. Lord our God, in you we have hope, because you, we know now how our story will end. Because of you, we can sing praise to you today, because you will restore your people when we consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars, and all that we see and don't see, we ask, who are we that you are mindful mindful of us? It's a mystery that you even care for us. So all that we can do is to glorify you and thank you with all that we are and all that we have. So receive our thanks. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.